southern end of Charlotte Sound on a beautiful blue day. Walden agreed to head south on the conditions that he be allowed to bring his own team of Chinook dogs and that the Americans eschew the historical precedent set by Peary and Amundsen of shooting the weak dogs to feed the strong ones. Bird's PR machine provided Walden with a ghostwriter and published A Dog Puncher on the Yukon about his experiences. The book quickly becoming a bestseller, adding to the cachet of and interest in the expedition. A trio of Harvard students Norman Vaughan and Eddie Goodale, already possessing dog sledge experience in Labrador, and their friend, Freddie Crockett, joined as dog drivers, spending the northern winter of 1927-28 at Walden's property in New Hampshire, learning from the master and testing equipment. Another Harvard man, Joe de Ganal, joined as a general hand. His piloting and navigator status in the Naval Reserve didn't amount to much in comparison with the experience of Balkan's hand-picked team of flyers, but a $25,000 donation to the expedition by de Ganal's parents, rich Mexicans forced to flee their homeland in the 1913 revolution, got him a berth. This was also the case for George Mike Thorne, whose presence arose off the back of a $9,000 donation to the expedition by his family. Thorne's grandfather owning the Montgomery Ward department store and mail order empire. Norwegian radio operator Carl Peterson offered his services to Bird when they first met at Spitsbergen while in service to Amundsen. Second radio specialist Malcolm Hansen counted among the dozen of Bird's Arctic team who originally got his berth in that expedition as a stowaway. Third radio operator Howard Mason earned his berth through two Arctic forays under Sir Hubert Wilkins. On Hilton Rayleigh's recommendation, Bird followed Shackleton's example by advertising for a Boy Scout to join the expedition. The competition itself raised the profile of the expedition, but the final selection process, in which Bird met and spent days with the prospective candidates, proved a PR coup, as the newspapers couldn't print enough articles about these hopeful young men and their exemplary explorer mentor. The successful applicant, 18-year-old Paul Seipel, blew the competition out of the water with his 56 merit badges and proficiency in many skills that might prove useful in the far south. He was as Boy Scout as it gets. I spent 16 years in the Scout Association and earned my Queen Scout Award, and even I find accounts of Paul Seipel in this stage of his polar career unctuous. The New York Times assigned Russell Owen to report on Bird's Antarctic adventures. His coverage of the Scopes Monkey Trial meant Owen was allowed to pick the plum assignments. His interview with Bird at Svalbard led to his also covering the Atlantic crossing flights in 1927, so he was pretty much a certainty for the Antarctic gig. Paramount Pictures nominated two cinematographers, Villard van der Veer and Joseph Rucker, to make the accompanying movie, expecting to recoup big bucks on their investment, these being two of the very small number of the expedition working for payment, and that arising from outside of Bird's coffers. In addition to the aircraft slated to fly over the South Pole, Edsel Ford donated a snow tractor, a Model A Ford fitted with Caterpillar treads. Bird imagined also applying air tractors, propeller-driven sledge pullermatrons, but either saner minds prevailed or no one donated anything along that fruitless line. Airboats are useful in shallow waters full of reeds, but they require a big engine to turn a big propeller required to provide the thrust necessary to make progress and big rudders to give thrust-based yaw authority at low speeds. They're noisy and thirsty and good at exactly one thing, and as soon as you attach a towed load to them, they lose even that small quotient of utility. Mawson's experience with the Vickers REP wasn't the last air tractor to head to high latitudes, but it bloody well should have been. With his expedition showing no signs of slowing its dramatic growth spurt, Richard Bird bought a second ship, the steel-hulled cargo steamer Chelsea, knee Kilmarnock, which he bought from Rum Runners Row, a holding wharf for ships confiscated for smuggling infractions against the Prohibition laws, and renamed it the Eleanor Bowling after his mother, and which the man with the paint can misspelt with a single L in bowling. As with the city of New York, repairs to the Eleanor Bowling at the Todd shipyard took far longer and cost far more than anticipated. While the romantically sail-powered city of New York named as a sap to Jimmy Walker's town where Bird's fame shone brightest, 
stood as the expedition flagship. The bowling served as the heavy lifter, carrying the dismantled Ford airframe named the Floyd Bennett, the Fokker Universal named Virginian, and the Fairchild Razorback dubbed the Stars and Stripes. Birds sourced and received free 90 Greenland Huskies and 40 tonnes of dog biscuits to fuel them for their year and a half long walkies. In early promotional articles, Bird spoke about taking eight Inuit south to act as dog handlers and to establish a colony, glibly writing off their relationship with the landscapes they came from as being entirely about temperature and claiming they wouldn't know they weren't at home in the Arctic once on site. He went as far as asking the Danish government for permission to take six men and two women he met during the Macmillan expedition to join his own expedition, but fortunately for those Inuit, nothing further came of the idea. When Michael Palin travelled to Antarctica in 1988, an Inuit aircraft engineer working at Patriot Hills discussed possibly being the first of his race to travel to Antarctica, and while the coverage given him in the Pole to Pole documentary didn't account his personal reaction to the continent, I think Bird was deeply misguided in mouthing his assumptions about their lack of consciousness relating to landscapes and a sense of home. And now I've got to get to work. Antarctica and the Arctic are very different places, about the only commonality being annual shifts in day length and ice. But Bird was a white, cis man from a privileged background in the first half of the 20th century, and so figured he could say whatever dumbass thing he wanted, and no one would ever judge him harshly for it. I like to think I'm making up for some lost ground on that front. The city of New York departed the city of New York on the 25th of August, a month later than originally intended. Three stowaways, arriving by independent paths but all choosing the four-peak locker of the city of New York as their stowhole, came to light. 17-year-old son of Polish immigrants, Billy Gawronski. stowaways arriving by independent paths, but all choosing the four-peak locker of the city of New York as their stowhole, came to light. 17-year-old son of Polish immigrants, Billy Gawronski, inspired in part by the example of 1926 Chantier stowaway and now radio operator Malcolm Hansen, swam across the Hudson River after sunset and shinned up the seaward side of the ship, out of sight of the shoreside gangway watch. Jack Sulowitz, 16-year-old Jewish dice sharp, who brought money and spare clothes, keeping dry by waiting for his moment and coming up the gangway when no one was looking. And Robert Lanier, determined to be the first African-American in Antarctica, hiring a longshoreman to bring him to the seaward side of the ship, taking to their hiding place for a two-day wait. Arguments between Gavronsky and Solowitz about who was better equipped and more deserving of a role in the expedition led to Sphere Strom rumbling their game and catching and wrestling Billy to the deck as he tried to cheese it. Billy was placed on the Makem, a ceremonial tugboat carrying Mayor Jimmy Walker in the send-off flotilla. Jack hid in the head. It came to light when Strom instituted a more thorough search, having heard more than one voice, eventually being caught by Mulroy. The Makem returned and took the second stowaway to shore. The crew found 20-year-old Bob Lanier last, but where Bird sent the boys home with some kind words and much sympathy, Lanier earned a place as dishwasher for his troubles, the previous incumbent being kidnapped by the family of his new wife on the morning of departure. Billy Gavronsky returned home to the Lower East Side with his confounded father, who couldn't fathom the recent high school graduate's obstinate refusal to take his father's refusal to sign the parental permission forms his son repeatedly thrusted him in his attempts to put his hand up for a role in the expedition crew, and then received a thorough berating from his distraught mother, went to his bedroom, 
snuck out the window and caught a train to the Todd-owned Pleasure Yacht Marina in which the Eleanor Bowling lay alongside, awaiting its own departure the following morning. Alert to the high probability of stowaways, the crew searched the ship and found him, once more stowed in the four-peak locker. They put him and a young woman stowaway ashore. Then they put him ashore again after he stowed away a third time, hiding himself this time in the four-peak locker. Early in its transit, the Eleanor Bowling received an unpleasant interception from a Coast Guard cutter under the command of a zealous, borderline nutty commander seeking contraband. Fortunately for Bird, all the contraband lay in the hold of the city of New York, large volumes of brandy being explained away by Bird as medicinal stock. Experiencing heavy rains, the timber stowed on the Bowling's deck grew sodden, the additional weight decreasing the ship's writing moment as the centre of gravity moved higher putting everyone in danger of a watery doom, but giving the crew the hook for the nickname they bestowed on the vessel, the Evermore Rolling. Barely able to make five knots flat out, the bowling endured one of the worst east coast storms in memory, which killed 2,000 people as it hit the Florida coast. The top-heavy, slow, and largely crewed by inexperienced men, the bowling was lucky to reach Norfolk, Virginia. On arriving in Christabel, the US outpost on the Panama Canal, Captain Melville put ashore a crewman who'd taken to hoarding food and water under his bunk, and Robert Lanier, whom he deemed lacked stamina. Lanier begged to stay aboard and resisted attempts to remove him from the ship. Melville handcuffed him to a stanchion and summoned the local police to remove him, but that wasn't the last that the expedition heard of him. Bird's money troubles caused the first major problem at this point as Melville found himself unable to pay to bunker more coal and to cover the fees for using the Panama Canal. Dog driver, George Thorne, reached into his own deep pockets to pay the hundreds of dollars necessary to keep the expedition going. Bird intended taking a week off with his family before joining the C.A. Larson in California but word came through that the Todd Shipyard final bill put the expedition $300,000 in debt. Bird spent his final week ashore in a lightning round of fundraising engagements. The Eleanor Bowling reached San Pedro after its harrowing transit down the east coast and its passage through the Panama Canal. Approaching the San Pedro Wharf, the crew began cheering when they sighted Billy Gravonsky when they sighted Billy Gravonsky, chancing his arm in a non-stowaway gambit after having hitchhiked his way across the USA to take a final shot at achieving his dream of sailing under his hero, Richard Bird. George Gummy Tennant, the ship's toothless cook, took a shine to the youngster and put him to work in the galley, awaiting a visit from Bird and eager that the commander should see the young man hard at work when he arrived. Bird, impressed by Billy's persistence, mirroring that which he himself applied in seeking the opportunity to travel to the Philippines at an early age to spend time under the mentorship of his uncle, Kit Carson, sought and received Billy's father's permission to take the now 18-year-old with the expedition, offering Gavronsky a berth as cook's mate. A third ship volunteered from the whaling fleet of Magnus Konau, a relative of Burnt Balkan, the James Clark Ross, the late Carl Anton Larson's former factory vessel, carried the expedition's 90 dogs and their handlers to New Zealand, en route to another season whaling in the Ross Sea. A second whaling factory vessel from Konau's fleet, the C.A. Larison, named after the recently deceased Southern Ocean whaling visionary, carried 100 tonnes of additional materials and stores, the aircraft and the aviator contingent of the expedition, stopping in San Pedro, California to collect Bird, who, as with so many expedition leaders before him, stayed on ashore to continue fundraising efforts to the final possible moment on the 10th of October. Captain Nilsson, at the helm of the C.A. Larson, found his American guests pleasant enough company, but considered them a crowd of amateurs heading for trouble. Bird picked his brain for as much knowledge about Antarctic waters and conditions as he could, but his questions to the experienced ice pilot and veteran whaler spoke volumes about how little the expedition realised what it was letting itself in for in the south. The Larson, 
under contract to Procter & Gamble to bring back whale oil rendered from the hunting efforts of a brace of five chaser boats, didn't constitute luxurious sailing for the aviator contingent. Factory ships were exactly that, and like any factory, didn't offer much beyond the bare bones of human habitation, and bore much sign of the product it was sent south for, with whale oil and blood forming a tangible patina on every surface, and an odour lacing every breath. Stray whale offal in hard to reach places sustained multitudes of vermin, and lice infested all bedding and, subsequently, all clothing and hair. Concerned about the financial standing of the expedition, Bird asked those men sailing with him if they thought it fair that he asked expedition members to pay for their meals while in New Zealand. They didn't think it fair, but that didn't matter, as he asked it of them anyway because the expedition was skint. Balkan, accustomed to Norwegian food and company, and stoic in the face of other people's faffing about, was the least uncomfortable of the expedition members aboard the factory vessel, and practised his celestial navigation during the transit to New Zealand, honing his skill with a sextant and learning the unfamiliar constellations of the Southern Hemisphere. Aboard the city of New York, Captain Frederick Melville, a relative of Herman Melville of Moby Dick fame, won no friends among expedition members by applying the standard merchant watch system, each man standing three watches of four consecutive hours each day. He also ignored Bird's attempt at keeping the expedition egalitarian by nominating the scientific contingent and other professional expedition members honorary officers, sparing them from the more onerous duties on board. Concerned that people were stealing from the ship's stores, Melville received the nickname Captain Klim because of a particularly fine rage he flew into when someone opened a tin of milk of that brand name without official permission. Paul Seipel noted Captain Melville as a cruel man, but if four-hour watches and discipline over stores were the worst he could accord, I doubt I'd agree. Sometimes the mores and assumptions pertaining to life at sea strike people unaccustomed to them as just a few rungs above barbarity, but there are good reasons for almost every standard and rule pertaining to the way a ship runs. Poor widow boy scout can't fall asleep for less than four hours. Boo-hoo. Anyone who can't get their head down and fall asleep at every opportunity doesn't last long in a maritime role. Touch wood, the capacity carries past middle age, but I adapted to shipboard sleeping habits quickly when I started working at sea. When Captain Melville realised the coal consumption would see the ship fall well short of its planned stop in Pago Pago, he radioed Bird for permission to instead make for Tahiti. The bowling arrived there first, and four expedition members got locked up for brawling. Paul Seipel recorded his disappointment in both his crewmates for their less than lofty behaviour while in port, and in Tahiti, whereas Paul Gorgian fueled expectations didn't map to the mosquito and rat-riddled reality, and the women weren't as beautiful as those in the paintings that comprised his entire a priori knowledge of the place. Poor Weedle Boy Scout didn't know about artistic license and idealised composition. Aboard the James Clark Ross, the dogs fared badly in their transit through the tropics. Diarrhoea and distemper characterised their health, and five died, their malnourished corpses going over the side. Everyone blamed the dog food, and they were correct. The James Clark Ross arrived in New Zealand first, with the dogs all sick as dogs. The dogs went to Quarantine Island near Port Chalmers, while University of Otago nutritionist Dr John Malcolm went to work devising a recipe for replacement dog food. Local confectioners, the Hudson Brothers, volunteered their industrial kitchen for the task, and six of their staff volunteered their evenings, and over two weeks generated 25 tonnes of the vitamin-fortified tallow, bone meal and oil biscuits. The replacement dog chow brought the animals back to good health, and the dogs became a local attraction as they worked up some of the condition they'd lost in transit. Dunedinites taking pleasure cruises to circle the island housing the quarantine station. Meanwhile, Bird's men took in the distractions on offer in Dunedin, alcohol among them, the New Zealand temperance movement having crippled the local viticultural industry but failed to achieve the votes necessary to sustain nationwide prohibition, the legislation falling on its ear just days before the expedition's arrival.
where the C.A. Larson arrived on the 5th of November. The Eleanor Bowling didn't turn up until the 18th, and the City of New York didn't show until the 26th. The C.A. Larson and the James Clark Ross unloaded their cargo of expedition materials into two Dunedin warehouses and headed south to fulfil their 1928-1929 Ross Sea whaling season roles. The arrival of the expedition in New Zealand kicked off rapid-fire telegrams between Wellington and London, Richard Casey asking his New Zealand counterparts to divine Bird's intentions regarding territorial claims without alerting Bird to the intent of their inquiries. Bird tried to assure everyone he encountered in New Zealand that his expedition comprised an entirely scientific effort and that he intended raising the Union Jack and the Norwegian flag at the South Pole to honour those who preceded him at the site keeping local relations sweet by not mentioning that he did intend making territorial claims on the behalf of the USA, even though he intended keeping clear of existing Commonwealth claims. Bird spent time in Christchurch, where he laid a wreath at the foot of Kathleen Scott's statue of her late husband, and in Wellington, where he spent time picking the brain of Sir Douglas Mawson, visiting to make preparations for the British-Australian-New Zealand Antarctic Research Expedition, Antarctic research suddenly being very important to Commonwealth nations for some reason. Mawson advised the expedition should base itself near the Gaussberg, offering as it did access to the greatest area of unknown territory, an opinion repeated by Griffith Taylor. But geologists aren't aviators, and I don't think their vicarious ambition for insightful geological knowledge took into account the weather conditions at their preferred site relative to that recommended by Amundsen. I don't know if snow blindness was forgotten or never considered until his discussions with Mawson, but Bird spent some of his time in New Zealand trying to source eye protection for his crew, no snow goggles or sunglasses coming with the expedition from the USA. News arrived from Washington DC that the British ambassador sent a letter to the State Department to offer the expedition every possible assistance, a statement of the Commonwealth claim over the Ross dependency appended to it. Leo Amory's Antarctic ambitions, politely but persistently expressed in diplomatic form, resulting from an interdepartmental conference held in October 1928, responding to Australian and New Zealand concerns over the looming US project. Embassy reports from Washington DC throughout early 1928 expressing similar concern, having disappeared somewhere in the massive machinery of British bureaucracy. The ambassador's letter constituted a compromise. Richard Casey saw the only valid path to thwarting American ambitions in the South lying in pipping them at the post, but without stronger Commonwealth representation than that available in the US-backed Wilkins, the Bird expedition faced an open field. Mawson and his colleagues wanted the British government to tell the Americans to back off, but diplomats feared this might bolster both grassroots and top-down support for Bird in the US. The city of New York arrived at Port Chalmers on the 26th of November, Bird champing at the bit to head south before losing any more time in the short Antarctic summer. Local labour filled four vacancies among the crews of the New York and the Bowling. Bird set the 1st of December as the departure date, leaving little time to load the ships according to the multi-stage sequence Bird mapped out to get the surfeit of materials and supplies to the barrier. On the morning slated for loading, only half the crew turned up. Bird and Brophy, furious, furiously rounded up those crew too beguiled by Dunedin's charms to bother turning up and gave the entire expedition a lecture on responsibility and forbidding anyone leaving the ships without explicit permission from the commander. A bold gambit when dealing with volunteers. While seeing to the stowing of the scientific equipment, Larry Gould found the geological and geophysical instruments damaged by water, and railed that the two years he assigned to the expedition might prove wasted for the sake of someone taking better care of such matters. Whether the instruments were carelessly stowed because the expedition leadership didn't care about scientific outcomes, or because the large number of people involved inevitably led to such oversights, was moot. If Gould couldn't geologise in the south, his time was wasted. 
Birds 2IC, Dick Brophy, proved problematic in his inability to manage simple decisions, passing increasingly inconsequential matters on to Bird, tying up Bird's time and leaving men standing idle while awaiting his reply. Brophy also demonstrated poor judgment in managing information, sending inappropriate radio and telegram messages to expedition backers and the relatives of crew. Bird's diplomatic solution to Brophy's deteriorating initiative and increasingly manic mannerisms placed Brophy in charge of the New Zealand operations while the expedition carried south, to the relief of many of the crew who found Brophy's behaviour difficult to pass and his orders even harder to follow. A song parodying him, Old Man Brophy, sprang up among the men, but Bird, unwilling to countenance such insubordination, drilled anyone caught giving it voice. Brophy, still too icy on paper, felt disappointed to not even see Antarctica, but Bird remained resolute. He didn't want Brophy on the ice where such questionable judgment might lead to disaster. The city of New York, with its wooden hull, the better to flex under and rebound from the pressure placed on it by the pack ice, was slated to act as the key vessel for reaching the Ross Ice Shelf, and as such, received an overburden of hut materials, food, men, and the Fairchild airframe. To save the coal for working among the ice, the Eleanor Bowling took the city of New York in tow, heading south on the 2nd of December. Part 7, same spot in Wilhelmina Bay, just changed batteries. Bird, exercising an owner's prerogative, which isn't a thing on a ship, but which he made a thing by exercising it, placed the city of New York on a three-section dogged watch, affording longer rest periods for the disgruntled liners who couldn't adapt to life at sea, but affronting the New England captain whose authority Bird usurped. En route, Shropshire used a newfangled sonic depth finder to chart the seafloor they passed over. Sonar, sound, navigation and ranging, arose in nature by several evolutionary routes, most people at least knowing that bats and toothed whales use sound to orient themselves. I haven't been able to find a reference, but Cameron Buchanan, my cabin mate on several multi-beam sonar swathing voyages, informed me that German sailors first used sonar to determine the depth of water under the hull of their ship by attaching a sledgehammer to the keel by a pivot set at the end of the handle. A rope system allowed the operator to send a ping by hitting the head of the hammer against the hull while a recorder stood by with a stopwatch, timing the echo and calculating the depth based on the speed of sound in salt water, treated as a constant. This proved useful and the start of the electrical age saw the hammer replaced with an oscillator transponder and the ears and stopwatch of the recorder replaced with a microphone and some circuitry. Developed rapidly and employed widely in the First World War to combat the threat posed by submarines, sonar units quickly became the ubiquitous replacement of sounding machines, which in their day replaced lead lines. Depth readings came in in as near to real time as the speed of sound in salt water afforded, allowing a ship to make soundings without heaving to, and the multiple soundings possible in a short period quickly led to the employment of spool-fed paper plotters to make depth records along a ship's track. Sonar now takes many forms depending on the task required of it. Small electronic transponders sufficient for simple depth measurement, higher voltage chirpers and sparkers offering more information about the nature of the seafloor, and seismic air guns or explosive charges returning information about rock strata deep beneath the benthos. Multi-beam sonar reads the return from a wide swath of the seafloor, orthogonal to the track of the ship using it, and side-scan sonar reads the characteristics of the backscatter from such swathing. I think of it as multi-beam reading the pitch and volume of music, where side-scan interprets the timbre. But I'm not sure that's a good analogy, and I welcome any input physicists care to provide on the matter. I'd ask Cameron, but he died of complications arising from a medical type 1 error a few years ago, and he was missed. The transit south offered Bird his first southern geographic finding, confirming the existence of Scott Island discovered in 1902 by William Colbeck aboard the Morning 
while en route to relieve the discovery in McMurdo Sound, and not seen since. Ross C. Whalers writing it off as a case of mistaken iceberg identity or an optical illusion, which would have surprised Coldeck, his having made a landing on the small, barren rock. The radio link with home allowed Bird to send word of this first Antarctic first immediately. Confirming someone else's discovery wasn't as exciting as making a discovery yourself, but it did put some runs on the board in Bird's competition with Wilkins, or more precisely, Bird's competition with William Randolph Hearst. The ships rendezvoused with the C.A. Larson on the 10th of December, using a radio direction finding antenna to home in on the transmissions the Larson emitted for exactly that purpose. The Eleanor Bowling bunkered a hundred tons of coal, as much as it could spare, into the city of New York before returning north to collect the second tranche of equipment, including the Ford and Fokker airframes, handing the towing duties over to the whaling vessel. The Larson towed the city of New York for an eight-day transit through the pack ice, twice as long as anticipated, dropping the tow and returning to its whaling duties once they reached the open waters of the Ross Sea. Bird kept Captain Nilsson informed of any whales sighted from the city of New York in gratitude for the help the C.A. Larison provided. A radio message on the 20th of December relayed news that put Bird's confirmation of Colbeck's discovery in the shade. Hubert Wilkins made the first flight in Antarctica. Bird didn't record his reaction, but I suspect he was not happy for his exploring colleague and worried that the Australian would also pip him to the pole. On Christmas Day, in spite of the constant concerns over the coal aboard their fuel-hungry city of New York, Bird ordered all speed to reach the barrier, which someone sighted from the crow's nest in the early afternoon. Bird made a toast to their having carried the American flag further south than anyone before them, the Christmas Day radio transmission home carrying that sentiment northward, because Bird always looked for the PR angle. Two days further steaming took the ship to Discovery Inlet. The embayment, cited by Scott, but as yet never used as a base of operations, carried the recommendation of the whalers, and Bird wanted to scout it as a backup site in case the Bay of Wales changed its configuration in the year since Amundsen departed. Recall that before it became the Bay of Wales, it was balloon bite, not just in name, but also in the form of large quantities of ice that later carved from the shelf and drifted north as bergs. Alton Parker spoiled Bird's photo opportunity in a Borschgrevink level upstaging, jumping onto the ice with a cry of, The Marines are always first to land! Dean Smith recorded the commander saying nothing, but looking distinctly pissed off. Mooring lines were established, attached to iron ice crews worked into Discovery Inlet's frozen shoreline, and some of the men began killing and butchering the Waddell seals lying unconcernedly on the sea ice near the ship for dog food. Balkan, Carl Peterson and Carl Brathen skied a 25-mile circuit, finding nothing suitable as a site for winter quarters, the hard-packed ice surface never flat enough to serve as a runway. The ship moved further east to the Bay of Wales, arriving on the 28th of December, one of the dog drivers gazumping Parker in gazumping Bird this time. Before scouting the area, Bird announced a long-delayed development. When Bird assigned Dick Brophy to shore duties in New Zealand, he didn't designate anyone as his immediate next in line on the ice. Larry Gould became the expedition third in command, technically under Brophy in the long term, but on the ice he became Bird's 2IC. While men once again set about killing the seals, finding the crab eaters in the Bay of Wales a bit more feisty than the Waddells of Discovery Inlet, others took to taking pot shots at the whales with rifles killing at least three for no reason I can pass. Boredom at best, and psychopathy at worst, perhaps. Arthur Walden and Norman Vaughan put dog teams onto the ice to carry Bird, Balkan, Peterson and Brathen in search of Framheim, but the 15 miles covered showed no trace of Amundsen's former abode. Whether Framheim got buried or burged, they were starting from scratch. After camping out for their first night on the barrier, the scouting party found a suitably flat area eight miles from a stretch of barrier edge bird named Ver Sumer, after the French coastal village at which the flight of the America made its wet finale. 
Rathen radioed a message to the city of New York. Start preparations at once to remove the cargo to the base. On the 2nd of January 1929, someone left the dogs, now numbering 84, after another death in transit, run off the ship and onto the ice, where they immediately set about trying to kill one another until the drivers got amongst the melee, breaking up the fights with the stock end of their whips. The dogs worked in teams of up to 13 animals, hauling loads up to 1,700 pounds, three quarters of a tonne, depending on the experience of the driver. Sledges departed the ship in pairs, the drivers carrying sleeping bags and other emergency kit in case the weather should change dramatically en route. Those new to driving dogs worked up slowly, more than one sledge returning to the ship fully loaded and without anyone on the brake, as the green drivers took their knocks on the road to competence. Four and later five tons of materials and stores crossed to the base site daily. Base construction kicked off. More precisely, excavation of the five foot deep pits for the construction of the prefabricated huts kicked off on New Year's Day. The hard neve proved tough to shift and the regular arrival of wind-blown gropel led to extra work digging the excavations clear of the more easily moved but still annoyingly additional loads of material. It took a fortnight for the first building to reach lock-up stage. The nail and bolt-free design demonstrated an excellent approach to heat conservation as metal elements transecting an insulation space negate much of the thermal merit of that insulation by conducting heat directly from a warm inside to a cold outside but this made the huts very difficult to assemble in even moderate winds. Fire concerns indicated against building the huts close together, so a tunnel network required extra digging in the hard-packed snow, someone calculating that they moved a total of two and a half million pounds of it to make Little America's various spaces. Larry Gould radioed Bird that he should name the site as soon as possible, preferably with something iconically American, to ensure people correctly identified their efforts on future maps and charts. Concerned that the newspaper reports citing the site as Framheim at home might crimp their rightful place in history. Bird adopted Gould's suggested name, Little America, on the 5th of January. The vagaries of life on Antarctic shores quickly took a toll on the crew and threw extra challenges in their path. A lot of the men caught flu, the doctor in particular requiring bed rest, and one of the dog drivers became sufficiently riddled with dog worms to also require time out from the hard yards. Drifting ice in the Bay of Wales required the city of New York cast off lines to manoeuvre, and cracks in the barrier between the mooring and Little America required the sledging path be relocated. Further cracking at the barrier edge allowed the ship to moor up two miles closer to Little America increasing the daily tonnage carried by the sledges, even on top of the increases achieved when the entire sledging contingent were all coming up to speed in their role. One driver, Quinn Blackburn, a student surveyor, earned the leadership's ire by taking his team out alone, and later for failing to stop to help when his buddy's team got into trouble. Bird relieved Blackburn of his team for a week. While in the hold of the city of New York during that week, a fuel drum fell on him, crushing the calf muscle in one of his legs and putting him out of action for far longer than the original punishment comprised, and in some danger of permanently losing function in the injured limb. Bird radioed home requesting an additional 20 dogs and a replacement aircraft engineer specialising in radial engines, the right engine company representative backing out of the expedition on facing the prospect of wintering over. Whether or not the dogs and the engineer could make it to New Zealand to join the Eleanor Bowling's final voyage south for the season was uncertain. Journalist Russell Owen collapsed and spent several days on the floor of Bird's cabin in a funk. Most of the crew rode it off as another bout of the flu. Dr. Coman deemed it a psychosomatic response to the dangers of Antarctica. Dean Smith considered it a passive-aggressive response to Bird's treatment of Owen's copy. Bird demanding the opportunity to edit and amend Owen's work before the radio operator transmitted it back to the USA. Owen pissed and moaned about Bird behind his back, and when word of this reached Bird, he deemed Owen disloyal, revoked an existing understanding that Owen could write the popular account of the expedition, 
and ordered Owen return to New Zealand with the city of New York. Owen, with a $10,000 a year salary from the New York Times at stake, begged to stay on through the winter, and Bird, on Dr. Coman's advice that sending the man home might prove worse for his health than having him stay on, relented on the matter, but the book deal with Owen was still off. Also troubling Bird, word came in from those left in charge of the business side of the expedition in New York that Dick Brophy's expenses in New Zealand exceeded any reasonable expectation. Adding to the picture of a loose unit at large with an expense account, Brophy's radio responses to Bird's supply requests for the return voyage of the Eleanor Bowling became increasingly querulous. Bird asked for toilet paper. Brophy responded that they should use wallpaper. Bird requested butter. Brophy advised seal blubber stand in. His decisiveness in these nonsensical responses standing in contrast to his passing Bird the most trivial of matters to judge over. Brophy had to go, but Bird worried that to sack the man might lead to a scandal over the misappropriations. Bad for Brophy, but perhaps worse for Bird, whose judgment and leadership would come into question. Meanwhile, Walden's favourite dog, Chinook, ancestor to the line of dogs he was working to breed into the perfect sledger, went missing. Old and favoured, Chinook ran loose while the other dogs worked, and Walden had to save his pet from a concerted attack from three of the Greenland dogs. Walden suspected the badly moored Chinook wandered away to die alone, and the loss grieved the dogman badly. On the 15th of January, the Stars and Stripes, the Fairchild surveying airframe, came out of its crate and its ready reassembly design saw it soon take to the air, each of the pilots taking their turn at the controls for a site familiarity flight. Parker going first, taking Benny Roth aloft after the mechanic won a cut of cards with his colleagues, Damas and Bouvier. Bird took a flight east with Dean Smith at the controls and June on the radio heading for King Edward VII land. On the return flight, Bird named Lindbergh Inlet and Chamberlain Harbour after fellow aviators, but the features have long since carved from the barrier, drifted away and melted. Lindbergh and Chamberlain didn't pay enough into the coffers to warrant their name's attachment to permanent Antarctic features. The flyers also spotted the Eleanor Bowling approaching the Bay of Wales. The engine cut out due to fuel starvation, but Smith kept his head, putting the Fairchild into a glide and working the problem until fuel reached the engine again and he made a precise landing in spite of blowing snow preventing him gauging his height above the runway. With the bowling alongside the sea ice edge and the flying fox, or zipline, or foofy slide, depending on where you're from, system, rigged from the sea ice to the barrier lip, the speed of the unloading increased and the distance the dog sledges had to carry their loads decreased by another half mile. Bird wanted the ship empty within a week to maximise the chance it might make another voyage south with the last of the year. Haste makes waste though, and the crate carrying the Fokker Universal's fuselage came down onto the sea ice with more speed than might be desired, damaging the aircraft's rudder. On the 29th of January, after the Ford's wing centre section was lowered, the area of ice the Derrick placed it on cracked and broke up. Fast work with ropes and pulleys and timber from the airframe crates kept the polar flight dream alive, but it was a near-run thing. Bird ordered the bowling set starboard side to the lowest edge of the barrier and moored up to ice screws, and the New York was brought alongside the bowling's port, allowing unloading from both sides in order to get the steel-hulled ship headed north as quickly as possible. On the evening of the 30th, a large mass broke off the barrier edge, landing on the bowling's forecastle. The weight of the ice caused the ship to roll to starboard, almost turning turtle, saved only by the buoyancy of the unaffected city of New York hard alongside to port. Aircraft mechanic Benny Roth was thrown into the water from the shelf edge in the violence, and clawing at the ice edge called up that he couldn't swim. Bird made to jump in to the rescue, 
but found himself restrained by colleagues. He promised them he'd come to his senses on the matter on seeing Hanson lowering a boat, and the restraining hands released him, at which Bird jumped in to the rescue. Shropshire jumped in to help Bird. Billy Gravonsky, the persistent stowaway and an excellent swimmer, also went into the water to lend assistance. Hanson had to jump overboard from the boat he launched as too many eager volunteers joined him in it, putting the tender at risk of foundering, but it stayed afloat and collected the drenched, chilled and frightened mechanic. Also thrown from the barrier edge, meteorologist Henry Harrison landed on a ledge left behind as the ice beneath fell away. A rope lowered to him by those left atop the barrier prevented any further descent, but those on high couldn't lift him. When the excitement in the water died down, the four men in the water, going into the engine room of the city of New York to recover, more hands headed uphill to help retrieve Harrison. As I mentioned in episode 67, Bird was brave, as his diving into the sub-zero degrees Celsius water to save the life of one of his men demonstrates. That he didn't succeed doesn't alter that he did a courageous thing in the moment, and it wasn't the first time he risked physical danger for the benefit of others having twice previously saved the lives of fellow sailors in warmer waters, and once remaining in a collapsing theatre to help those inside find their way to safety. That Benny Roth would have survived if the commander did nothing doesn't alter that the commander jumped in the sea with the intent of saving the life of someone in his care. As with several previous expeditions, sudden and dramatic danger forced a rethink about how to operate in Antarctica. Gould, noting in his diary his uncertainty that Little America would last the two years required of it on a moving glacial ice shelf. Dog teams and the Caterpillar track equipped Model A Ford relayed equipment and supplies to Little America and the bowling got steaming north as fast as the remaining coal allowed, though its 2nd of February casting off didn't bode well for a repeat performance. The aviation team had the Floyd Bennett assembled and run up by the 14th of February, and Balkan and Dean Smith took it up for its first Antarctic shakedown flight. And Balkan and Dean Smith took it up for its first Antarctic shakedown flight. June made an agreement with Bird that he would forsake his shot as first pilot on the pole flight if he could take part in an auxiliary role in all exploratory flying, limiting the glory he might gain from his presence over the pole, but at least guaranteeing it. Balkan received the nod for the next exploratory flight in the Fairchild though with Bird unwilling to give up a seat to anyone in case the flight discovered something in his absence, and June aboard as per his agreement with Bird, the flight couldn't carry Ashley McKinley and his surveying camera, the very reason the Fairchild came south in the first place. The flight passed Scott's Nun attack and named a range of 14 small peaks on the margin of the barrier the Rockefeller Range, Gould later commenting they were named after a signature on a check. On the third aerial foray, Bird began his intended mode of flying aircraft in pairs, he and Balkan in the Fokker, being shadowed by Parker and June in the Fairchild. They flew to the Rockefellers again, but cloud obscured their view. Flying back, Bird's navigational instructions had Balkan flying past Little America. Balkan asked where Bird was taking them. Home, came the reply to which the bewildered Norwegian highlighted that Little America now lay behind them. At first, Bird didn't concede the mistake, but Belkin held to what he knew to be true, having seen the base pass by in the distance while Bird had his head down over his calculations. Bird did what he could to save navigational face by ordering, All right, go home, at which the pilot made the necessary turn and glided back to base. McKinley, frustrated that Bird exempted him from all flights to date, got Gould on board with the idea of a dedicated photographic survey flight, and together they urged that Bird afford McKinley an opportunity to photograph over King Edward VII land. 
With the weather improving during his return flight and the outlook stable, Bird consented on the stipulation that the Fairchild not fly further than the 75-mile margin already covered. Eager to keep as much discovery to himself as possible, Dean Smith flew McKinley and Berkner east in the Fairchild and they photographed the Rockefeller Mountains. Clear weather to the southeast and an intriguing distant peak encouraged them to fly on. Little America sent a negative response to a request for further investigation, but the three men aboard the Fairchild later attested that the message came through garbled, so on they flew. They never reached the Matterhorn-like peak, rising perhaps as much as 10,000 feet above mean sea level, turning back due to fuel concerns. On reporting their exciting discovery after the seven-hour flight, Bird asked Smith and McKinley to identify on their chart where they thought the peak they sighted lay. After some time comparing notes and discussing the flight, the two men circled an area encompassing around 30 miles of territory well into King Edward VII land. Bird's reaction gave everyone present a telling insight into what sort of man they'd opted to spend the winter in a small box with and I'll quote some of Dean Smith's account, written after the expedition ended, and without the benefit of his diary or notes, which went mysteriously missing during the expedition demobilisation. Brackets, it's not actually that mysterious to those who knew Bird ordered it stolen from Smith's footlocker to decrease the chance anyone would have anything bad to publish about him, in some sort of Trump logic, in that the act of ordering it stolen was, in itself, something bad to publish about him. Close brackets. Bird spoke very seriously, quoting Smith's account. Bird spoke very seriously. This is important. I congratulate you gentlemen on confirming my discovery. You have located this new land in almost exactly the same place where I saw it this morning. You saw it this morning, exclaimed McKinley. But you didn't say anything about it after the flight. No, I wanted to be sure before I announced it, but I did mark it on my map. Wait. I'll show you. Bird went into his room, closing the door behind him. We all sat mute. I caught Balkan's eye. He shrugged and rolled his eyes to the ceiling. Owen kept shaking his head. Gould looked amused. After about five minutes, Commander Bird returned, spreading a map on the table. Here is the course of the flight this morning, he said, pointing to a penciled line. And here is where I marked the new peak. He showed us a heavy cross, drawn in a softer pencil than the course of the flight itself. Sure enough, if transposed to my map, his cross would fall close to the centre of the circle. End quote. Bird announced he would call the area Marie Birdland, and gave Russell Owen permission to forward the announcement to the New York Times. Dean Smith recounts that on leaving Bird's company, McKinley Riley commented, It takes keen vision to be a great explorer. I'm afraid you and I will never be great explorers. Whether the incident exemplifies Bird's willingness to lie in order to keep his role to the fore in all reports of the expedition, or illustrates his unwillingness to openly confront defiance of his orders, remains unclear. Subsequent accounts of the expedition written by Bird, or drawing on the output of Bird, Sight the 10,000-foot peak first coming to Bird's attention on the first flight to Edward VII land with Balkan, but whether precluding their flying closer to it. In spite of the obvious gainsaying of history, Smith's account being confirmed by Balkan, the names Bird applied stuck, and Marie Birdland is still a thing. The US geographers never took any American claim to the area seriously, no matter how strenuously the New York Times asserted Bird could and did claim the area for the USA. Bird cabled Marie. One of the things I have most wanted to do of all was to name the biggest land after you. Take it over for the US and at the same time tell the world that you are the finest person in it and deserve the credit for my accomplishments. I've done this and nothing ever pleased me so much. Nothing I've done, I mean. I told you I'd make the world bow to you, and I'll do it again. Very much ego. Many megalomaniac.
On the 22nd of February, the City of New York departed, taking the summer-only staff with it. Many of those sent north despaired of their lot, among them Billy Gavronsky, whose luck as a stowaway didn't extend to the glory of overwintering with his hero. Cook, Sidney Greeson, went north due to his alcoholism, replaced by the teetotal cook from the Eleanor Bowling, and Freemason in company with many other overwinterers, George Gummy Tennant. <coughs> Greeson resented the swap, feeling cheated by perceived underhanded actions against him. Bird originally intended sending Paul Seipel north, figuring the risk of bad publicity should anything happen to the Boy Scout, who was actually one of the largest individuals to sail with Bird, 19 years old and postponing his second year at university to be there, outweighed the likelihood of any good publicity that might arise from keeping him at winter quarters. But the crafty lad made himself sufficiently useful to Larry Gould that the geologist petitioned for his presence. Billy Gavronsky and Paul Seipel, while never noted as actively antagonistic to each other, competed for favour in their gambits to stay on. Billy accepted any task given to him with aplomb, cheerfully chasing down emperor penguins and hauling and digging like a Trojan. But Seipel, by taking the taxidermy duties off Gould's overburdened shoulders, found the sole path to inclusion available to the youngest members of the expedition. Pay attention, Boy Scouts. That taxidermy badge may come in handy. Blackburn, his legs still recovering from the crush injury he received while relegated to unloading duties, received a reprieve from an earlier decision to send him north for his repeatedly ignoring simple instructions about safe dog sledge ops. The Eleanor Bowling never made its second delivery, finding the pack ice too dense to traverse and turning for New Zealand once more, but not without influencing the expedition by a circuitous and distressing mechanism. Bird's method to prevent Dick Brophy's personal expenses further denting the expedition funds involved finally acceding to Brophy's request to at least see Antarctica, and he sailed on the Bowling's second supply trip. While aboard, he sent messages to the New York Times indicating, at first, that he was heading south to rescue Bird, and later that he intended establishing his own winter quarters at Discovery Inlet. While he couldn't spend Bird's money directly, he could still cause the sort of PR nightmares that Bird feared from him. The New York Times ignored his transmissions and Captain Brown managed his behaviour without resorting to throwing him in the laundry brick. So shit didn't get as real as it might have done but Brophy was clearly experiencing some sort of mental illness with the potential to do real damage to himself and others if trusted with further responsibility. Bird sent the city of New York on two attempts to establish a separate shore station further to the east of Little America, but each attempt found no suitable landing. With the short summer coming to an end, the scope to act, even if an apt site came to light, shrank to insignificance. The city of New York experienced difficulty heading north through the pack, and Bird asked Captain Nielsen of the C.A. Larison for further help in getting the coal-depleted ship home. Nielsen radioed back his willingness to come to the wooden ship's aid, but noted that the poor weather indicated the best course might be to transfer all the crew to one of the whalers and abandon the city of New York to the ice. With the city of New York representing their best chance at leaving Little America, and a substantial source of potential future funds, assuming Bird could find a buyer after the expedition. This news displeased Bird, but if you ask for help at sea, you need to be grateful for the help you get, not resentful that you don't get the miracles you want. On the 25th of February, the Larson and two of its chasers probed the pack ice, eventually finding the city of New York and leading it to open waters, where conditions improved enough to allow coal bunkering. One of the Larson's chaser boats sank on the 27th, so yeah, be happy anyone comes to your aid in any form when you're up Ship Creek. Back in New Zealand, the ships went into dry dock for repairs, and the expedition retained only skeleton crews in Port Chalmers for the winter. In addition to a dozen men departing the expedition in various states of dudgeon, among them Brophy, who went into an asylum in New Zealand, and the second mate of the Eleanor Bowling, who'd helped Brophy in his attempted mutiny. Many of the crew headed home to the USA to await their return voyage to retrieve the winterers. 
one of these returnees sold illicit pictures of the expedition to the Hearst Publishing Empire. In spite of vigorous attempts to find out who put his exclusive contracts at such peril, Bird never did finger the culprit. New Zealander Harold Tapley took on Brophy's former role as Antipodean agent for the expedition, while Bird and Hilton Rayleigh corresponded as how to best handle the fallout from the problematic former 2IC. Unwilling to press charges over misappropriation of funds for the sake of keeping the expedition looking squeaky clean in the eyes of the public, Bird actually contemplated giving Brophy another position, one holding less responsibility, if discharged from the asylum. The New Zealand government sent Brophy home where he went into care. After release back to the community, Brophy faked his own death, leaving a suicide note and clothing at Coney Island, though he later turned up in Omaha, Nebraska, claiming this was a case of losing heart in a suicide attempt at the last moment, rather than an attempt to fake his own death. The hapless Blackburn caused the expedition's second scare on the barrier disappearing in a blizzard with his dogs during the first foray back among the dog-driving cadre. He didn't stay within sight of those teams he departed the barrier edge with and lost his way in the deteriorating conditions. Failing to heed another common-sense directive, he didn't have a sleeping bag with him in order to weather such weather. And Bird, once more showing his mettle when the shit hit the fan, led a search party into the storm. They found Blackburn dug in with his dogs and safe enough, but Bird kicked him off the dog teams permanently for his demonstrated inability to follow oft-repeated, easy-to-understand, simple-to-follow,